Hi, I'm Shaylee Shibaxi Ritchie. And I'm her co-host and sister, Kosha Baxi Karstens. Spoiler alert, we are sisters. And best friends. We grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in a heartland farming community. We were certainly loved. We had lots of friends, but we never felt like we really fit in. We started to realize that there were a lot of people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was the seed for this podcast. Then, during the 2020 election cycle, we watched now Vice President Kamala Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence. We saw what a badass she was, and we got inspired. We wanted to hear, share, and amplify the voices of everyone who has felt other. We wanted to give everyone a platform, regardless of who they are, who they love, or where they're from, to reclaim their power and their place, to stand up and say, I am speaking. Welcome again, listeners, to another episode of I Am Listening. No. Yeah, I mean, well, <laughs> staying in. Staying uh, in. <laughs> I mean, we are listening. <laughs> that came out so naturally, too. It rolled. I am listening. No. Uh, all right. <laughs> Welcome, listeners, to another episode of I'm Speaking with Shay Lushin Kosha. And our guest today is Tatiana Rohner Del Sordo. She is a bilingual therapist who's both been providing services as a private therapist, but also through um, city clinics, which is fantastic, and is actually an advocate for this, you know, pushing back at the mental health care system. So not just saying, oh, everyone should have mental health care, but really doing the work to push back and say, okay, what does it mean for everyone to have mental health care? She is really good friends with one of our old, one of our other guests, Dr. Javier Gomez. And she is from Colombia. We are going to be known as like this special, like if you're Colombian and you have something to say, you come on this podcast. Yeah. We've got three people yeah, already. So far. And we do talk about Encanto with her also. Yes, we do. She had such a unique perspective because one of the things we talk about a lot on the podcast, especially this season, is the stigma around mental health, mental illness, neurodiversity, and and getting care for your mental health. And she had, she's like, it essentially it's not enough just to destigmatize it. It has to be at the kind of like micro, mezzi, and macro levels. And it's just not enough to say like, you know, mental health is healthcare. You have to go deeper into it. And um, her perspective was, it just was so much deeper than I think a lot of people are thinking about. Yeah, that's absolutely true, Kosha. I think the other thing, well, one of the things that really caught me by surprise was the fact that stigma doesn't play nearly as big of a role in people not seeking healthcare as systematic obstacles. So things like cost, right? And anyone who's actually gone to a therapist or had to pay any money out of pocket for forget therapy, any amount of money out of pocket for your doctor's visits or your, you know, your prescriptions, that stuff adds up you know, money being one, cost being one, location being one. One of the best things I remember her saying is like, you can't just throw up a clinic and be like, okay, we're here, right? Um, And then when people don't come, be like, see, nobody wants our services. Being culturally careful means that you're actually thinking about 
what this clinic is doing in the context of the entire community. Despite the best intentions by people in the say nonprofit sector or government sectors to really do good for their communities, that's often lacking. It, like there's such a flaw in the system. It's like a black hole in the system is like you put money into all of this stuff and then you're like, well, see, it didn't work. So now pull that money and put it totally elsewhere instead of actually going in and say like, but why didn't it work? How do, how can we help remove some of these obstacles? And there's some things that, you know, that are triggering for people that we take for granted. And there's just so many things that if you are comfortable moving in today's, you know, in the society today, and, and not to say that, you know, coach, obviously you and I, we stick out in places um, because of our skin color and our, you know, ethnicity, but for so many other things, we have so much privilege. We're U.S. citizens. We speak English. We're well-educated. We have financial resources in all of these things that can make a simple appointment so challenging. You can deal with one thing or two things, or maybe even three things, but as things start to pile up, it's just too much. And certainly during, you know, the last couple of years, when people have been trying to do all kinds of things like teach their kids and work. Um, We know just how hard it can be when things pile up and you go, F it, I'm not doing any of this. Right. I will say that it was hard to decide to put Tatiana in our expert voices series or in our regular series. Yeah. I'm telling you this woman, she comes across and is an expert in what she talks about. Yes. But we felt like it really worked with the essence of the essence and the importance of our, our series, like our regular podcast and this season of mental health and neurodiversity. So absolutely enjoy this lovely, wonderful woman, Tatiana. She is speaking. Hi, I'm Tatiana Roner. My pronouns are she, hers, and I am speaking. Hi, Tatiana. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. We're so thrilled and grateful that you have agreed to come on our podcast and talk about your experience um, and, and your expertise. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, that's a great opportunity. Just to get us started, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm from Colombia. I was born and raised there. My parents are immigrants, so my my mom's family came from Italy, and my father's family is half Colombian, half from Switzerland, so we are a real a mix. But I was born and raised in Bogota, the capital of Colombia, and I moved to Chicago 14 years ago, around 14 years ago. And I, I, I have a husband, I have a, a boy, he's nine, Mateo. I, I practice mental health, like I'm a mental health practitioner right now. Wow. I have to ask, because Kosha and I have often wondered this ourselves. Our parents are immigrants. They are from India. And we often wonder why did, I mean, we know why my dad picked Chicago, 
But we often wonder why why not look somewhere else, right? In just like India, Colombia's some parts of Colombia are warm. I guess not all, not the whole country, but then why would you why would you settle in a place that's so cold? So much of I the know. Year? Yeah. Well, actually in Colombia, when I was there, I don't know now, but when I was there, Chicago was not very well known. Like the main cities you you hear about the United States were like Orlando, Miami because of Disney, New York, things like that. And and but my my husband is a doctor and he came here to to do his his residency here. So he interviewed in different programs around United States and the one that he liked the most was in Chicago. So we we stayed, we moved to Chicago because of that. But yeah, the weather is uh I love Chicago. I, I think it's a very interesting city, like a lot of it's, it's not simple, it's interesting. But but at the time, I, I the the winter was a, a difficult experience for me. Oh my gosh, yes, yeah, and that's what our father is a physician too, and that's exactly why he settled here. Oh, is because uh-huh. he was doing his residency here, and he that's where he decided to do his residency. Same hospital, Shailshi. Same hospital. Same, oh, said Cook County. Yeah, he's at Cook County. Yeah, so, Cook yeah. County. Uh huh. <laughs> they must have a great residency program for a lot of different things. One thing about Cook County or Strozier now that it's called is they look beyond the borders. Like they really do try to get this very global community. Yeah. And I think they're very focused on teaching and learning and you have a lot to learn because there are a lot of difficult cases, but they really focus on how do we do better? Like what can we learn from this experience? And there are constant meetings and teaching experiences. So I think for, for students, it's a, it's a great opportunity. So then you came here, were you married when you came here? Yeah, yeah. But you did not have your son, right? No, 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 I didn't have my son. Yeah, no. Uh, we, we actually, we got, we had a very long relationship. I met him when I was 19, so. It, it was long, but but we decided to get married when we were coming here because of the paperwork, visas, and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, were you practicing mental health in Colombia, or is that something that you, you know, pursued once you moved here? Yeah, no, I wasn't. I, stu- I studied anthropology in Colombia, and I, and I wanted to work in and doing ethnographic research. That was my main interest. But unfortunately, I worked with the government, with the um, like Department of Communications and Culture for a while, but it wasn't consistent. Like they, it was not stable. The, the information was used in different ways. So I ended up working on marketing, doing ethnographic information for marketing. And I ended up working in, in branding and in communication for, for I think around four years. So I, I like it, but it was not my, my passion. Like I didn't feel connected with community or anything. It was mostly numbers, campaigns, things like that. So when the opportunity came to move here, I was ready for a change in career soon. And when I studied anthropology, I did like a specialization in psychology. So I did both, not, not fully psychology, but uh, some classes in psychology too. When you decided, okay, I'm done doing that and I want to do something else, what drew you to, to doing mental health support work? Well, I, it, 
I I wasn't planning to do so. Like it 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 wasn't uh, part of my ex uh, my dream when I came here. But the thing is, like it's it's like a mix of things. One is like in my family we struggle with a high level of anxiety. So when I moved here, the anxiety increases a lot. And I started seeing uh, for the first time in my life, a mental health practitioner. So that was my own personal experience. Uh, on the other side, I, I learned about social work. That, that in Colombia, social work doesn't exist in the same way you guys have it here. Like here in the United States is, is more like a mix between mental health and a little bit of anthropology and sociology, like you try to to advocate for clients, uh, you can work in different in different areas, but you uh, can also provide mental health. So I I first fell in love with social work, the the opportunity to do that in my life, and then mixed with my experience in a practitioner, how how helpful it was for me, I decided to do social work with mental health focus. Yeah. I see. So yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and I can imagine that being a very satisfying career path. I know social work ha and mental health both have a lot of subspecialties. You don't do everything all the time, you end up doing something specific. What does most of your work consist of? Yeah, well, at this point, I, I took the mental health path. So I licensed in, I'm an LCSW. I took some, it took some time, some exams, some supervision, and I do, I do therapy, psychotherapy, basically. But what I like about being a social worker and doing psychotherapy is that I don't see the, 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 the client as a diagnosis. Yeah, it's not like he is uh, my depressive client or he is my anxiety client, but it's rather you see the whole picture. You see that there is social oppression, that there are some factors, and, and, and you know that you want, it, it's not enough to do the job only inside your office. You have to also advocate outside, advocate for their needs, maybe call some places to get them referred. Sometimes you have to go with, I have gone many times with clients to see the doctor, like to be able to advocate for them, to translate, to, to make an appointment or things like that, because I'm completely aware that only talking about mental health in the session is not going to be enough. So, and I think that's something that social work, social work gave me like that perspective. Yeah, I know that I absolutely understand. I have my master's in public health and there's a lot of overlap between social work and public health as well. And that what you were saying about it being, it has to go beyond the office, beyond the one-on-one -on -one conversation with the client, because people don't experience their mental health all the time in the office. They experience it in their life. Whatever changes need to be made have to be made in their life, not just oh, you're having a great one hour session with me and then it's over. Exactly. And not only that, not only that, but also like the, the structures, right? Like you, 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 you say a person is depressed, but probably the person has experienced complex trauma throughout their life like at work, not being able to reach resources. So it's a structural issue. Too. So we need to advocate and participate in community and collaboratives or things that are going to ensure some change for these people. So that's what I like the most. It's like it's not only one-on-one, which is important too, but we also have some other duties, <laughs> like other uh, commitments. 
you know, I find it fantastic that you, you needed something when you came here and that led you to kind of change your career because what you did was go, okay, I need help. And then realize that like people who are like me probably need help. Yeah. And what a huge difference it did for me to find some support, right? Like my, my grandparents came after the Second World War. So they came to Colombia after experiencing a lot of losses, trauma, years of trauma, complex trauma, right? So it, it, it's multi-generational trauma. Like you live and then Colombia wasn't the safest place either, right? So, so it's like um, there's always fear, there's, you know, there's always hypervigilance, there is a lot of anxiety, yeah? If I didn't want to continue doing that to my son, like I, I wanted to learn coping skills, like how to, how to help him if I bring all this anxiety from generations, yeah? How to help, me co- help, help him cope with the anxiety, how to help him cope with some things that I do and maybe he will learn to do, but he will learn how to minimize the effects of his life. You know, you were saying your grandfather went through World War II. You know, our parents and our grandparents lived through the Indian partition mm. and, and, and the freedom movement there, the independence movement there. That was, a, you know, a lot of trauma there as well that was hard enough when they were fighting for independence, but then all of the conflicts after partition, it was like living in the middle of a civil war. It was a civil war, but there's a level of affluence that our parents and grandparents had that allowed them to stay somewhat away from the fray, right? They weren't in the middle of it, but that stuff has repercussions, right? It's not like, just because it's happening over there doesn't mean it doesn't affect you. And that's the kind of stuff that never, people don't, if it didn't happen directly to you, you think, oh, it's fine. But it does get passed down. Yeah, it gets passed down. Mm-hmm. And to your point, it gets passed down in different ways. It's not, ne- it, it gets passed down as anxiety, as paranoia, as hypervigilance, right? It doesn't get passed down like, in these obvious ways that you can deconstruct them very easily. Yeah, no, no, because it's not your story. So it's not something easy. That's why I think some, some of the new therapist theories, like somatic experiencing is very, very getting to the point of that, right? Because it's not that you can express what's happening, but it's in your body, it's in your nervous system. So, so I think those kind of, new ways of seeing therapy are getting more to that point to things that it's not in your experience but it's in in your body it's in your nervous system wow could could you talk a little bit more about that somatic approaches I've heard so much about it I think it's becoming a little bit of the buzz you know the the cool new thing um which I'm not saying it's useless. I'm just saying, I think so many of our listeners would really appreciate understanding how that can either complement or not replace, but how it can be complementary to other types of therapy that people might be going through. As a disclaimer, I have to say that I'm far from being an expert because I've just started my training. So I mean, beginners. Well, you're more of an expert than we are. <laughs> <laughs> But, but I think it comes from a very common place for a lot of therapists. Like we notice that 
talking talking therapy like talk therapy is not enough like we talk we we find we are aware we discuss things but still the nervous system has a whole independent life <laughs> like we know that there are reactions that we cannot even understand right and our amygdala our brain it reacts even before we understand what's happening it's been becoming clear that that trauma stays in the body and somatic experience and is like treating the body treating the nervous system is new but i think it is not that new it comes from a, a awareness that was raising that talk therapy is not enough not always enough is not always enough so we need something else so that's why i think emdr came to some uh, and the somatic experience approach too and i have to say like i have i suffer from anxiety pretty severe anxiety i have i go to therapy and i have i'm on medication Still, there are times where I will say, you know, I'm having an anxiety attack and it's in my body. Like it is my stomach. It is my heart. It is my skin. And someone will ask me like, why? Like what triggered this? And I don't know. Half the time, I don't know where it came from. That stomach feeling has been there for a few hours and I'm just becoming aware of it now as it's getting worse. So it's almost like you're, like you said, your body knows before your brain does. And so even that, that physical tune in, like being tuned into your body more, and then maybe I could go, as soon as I start feeling it, I could say, what was the trigger at that point? Instead of four or five hours later, when it's now snowballed into a full anxiety attack. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely true. And the other thing is like with, with this treatment, we want people to find safety on their nervous system. So as, as soon as you go to this vortex of anxiety, you can go to another one for, uh, on your own. So try to go to a safe place within your nervous system too. So that takes practice and takes a while, but it's, I think it's a very intuitive practice. Like it's, it's something that we kind of know we need it. Yeah, even though we may not have the skills yet. In your practice, do you do you have a population that you end up seeing more? You know, uh, given that you are bilingual, I imagine that you are you more than bilingual. Let's start with that question. Well, yeah, I I I I was raised speaking Italian at home because I I was living with my my grandparents, my Italian grandparents, so I learned Italian since birth but at the same time I spoke Spanish uh, with my like for, with my dad I have both like um, mother languages I will say and then when I came to the United States I started learning English so for me it's of course more comfortable to do therapy in Spanish or Italian but I, I my clients are mostly Hispanic um, immigrants so I have two practices two different practices on one side I I co-founded a non-profit organization called Centro Sanar with some other colleagues, social work colleagues. And we are four and we were working on a community or community mental health, but we struggled with it. Like it, it, it was always, it was not safe for practitioners, neither for the clients sometimes. So it was part of a hospital. They had their own interests. So maybe the community, we felt like the community was not always 
the priority. Yeah. And, and then we decided to fund in 2020 this nonprofit Centro Sanar. And we are located in between Back of the Yard, Brighton Park, southwest of Chicago, where the population is mainly Hispanic. So we offer services for free, mental health services for free. Um, we got grants. We were very fortunate. We got grants and because we've been working very close for years in, in that area and we know a lot of community organizations, we were able to build this place. And we have a wait list and we have now we have another four clinicians working with us. So, so that's mostly uninsured or an underinsured uh, immigrant, mostly Latino. Do you, it, it, are a lot of those people like undocumented? Yeah, yeah, a lot, a lot, a lot of undocumented. So they wouldn't find services in other places, yeah. Even if they wanted to, they, they didn't feel safe, yeah. And, and they want to, I will say they want to a lot. Like we, when I was working in the community program before, we always had a wait list, even though like six month wait list minimum. It be, sometimes it was nine month wait list, even though we hire more clinicians or we apply for the more grants, things like that, we grew and we had a longer wait list. Like the need was there, was absolutely there. And, and now, same with the nonprofit, like we have a wait list, we, and, and that's very sad in a way, because it, it even though it means that we're doing a good job and people want to come to see us, it's like there are not services for them, so there are not resources there, and, and there are not, like I, I, I invite you to check some information, there is a, a website, and it's a, the Collaborative for Community Wellness, that's ORG. They have done a lot of studies in the, uh, regarding the lack of resources in those areas. So, for example, usually they say, no, they don't go to services because Latino community don't go to services because of stigma or something like that. And they did a huge research in 2017 in, in those areas in several, like, I think five neighborhoods mainly. And they found that 80% wanted to go to therapy, but the, the, the reasons of not being able to find services were, were structural, were, were cost, childcare, uh, no, nothing close by them, couldn't pay transportation. Like stigma was actually, I was checking that out before journey here, but stigma was actually only like 10%. Cost and those structural barriers was like, seven, 38%, it was huge. So they do want, they do need services, but services are not available. So even though we try to offer services, we are aware that we cannot replace structural change, like more like city-wide offering, uh, preventing mental health services that are culturally appropriate for, for the immigrant community. Yeah, absolutely. That Those structural issues are the, you know, kind of, the same in all settings, in so many settings, right? Why don't people um, seek healthcare, mental health care? Why don't people, um, why do people have a hard time holding down a job, particularly if they're doing shift work and then how do you get childcare or pursuing education? They're so challenging that it really becomes a game of affluence. If you have money, right? If you have money to, have healthcare uh, insurance, hire a babysitter, have a car, you know, all of those things, 
have the ability to find a therapist that is good for you, that you have a good relationship with, that speaks your language, all of those things, then it's, then you can do it, right? Then you can finish your PhD with three kids and, you know, being a single parent or whatever, but you have to have the money to pay for all of those things. How how much of our health and mental health is really an issue of finances, an issue of money? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a privilege. In, in fact, in the, I think in the same website that I mentioned before, they, they published some data about 78.5% of the city lived in areas with less than 0.2 therapists per 1,000 residents, so 0.2. While in areas like Oak Park and Gold Coast, it's like 4 ther- 4.3 therapists per 1,000 of population, yeah. People. So the difference is huge. And just speaking about number of practitioners, what about cost? What about language? What about healthcare? What about many other things? Sure. There, there, then there are other situations that increase the, the, the complexity of the neighborhoods and, and situations like that. The other thing that is also very, sorry, I'm talking a lot. I'm very passionate about this subject. <laughs> no, you're supposed to be talking a lot. <laughs> yeah. So the other thing is like for us practitioners, the salaries we will get working in community mental health are very low, very low. Sometimes with no insurance, sometimes with no safety, there's financial safety. So usually the younger clinicians are the ones that are working in mental health until they get the licensing and then they move to private practice. In my case, I have to do part-time community mental health with the nonprofit and part-time private practice. Otherwise, I won't be able to have the, finance, like the financial stability that I need to raise my son. So it's also a dynamic that's structural about how we pay workers, how we pay social workers working in low-income communities. You're absolutely right. That's a systemic problem as well, which is people have to be able to survive themselves in order to provide services to other people. But if you are a public health physician, you get paid, you know, pennies to the, you know, people in private practice. If you are, you know, a therapist or a social worker working for a community clinic, you get paid pennies compared to, you know, if you're in private practice, all of those things. It's so, so challenging. Um, Even if you want to do good. Yeah it's there are barriers to even being able to do good yeah people who work in nonprofit, mental health counselors therapists social workers it's like you're not allowed to ask for money teachers are the same you're not allowed to ask for money because aren't you doing this for the greater good aren't you doing this because you're a good person and because you want to help you want to teach young minds you want to help the community and you're not allowed to ask for money. It's like, they're not mutually exclusive. I could, I also need, like I'm doing a job in order to make money and pay my rent and for food mm-hmm. and stuff. Like I, I still need to eat. I also need to eat, yes, exactly. Yeah. Like I can't survive off like people's good intentions. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. And th- and that's very sad because like, for example, now working with a nonprofit, we are trying to do, do things very differently within ourselves. Like, for example, in, in other agencies, a clinician will be asked to see 
to do 40 hours like or 30 clients per week. That's crazy. That's crazy. You are hours after hours hearing people completely in connected with the person who's experiencing a lot of trauma and has a lot of needs. Yeah, you cannot spend six hours per day doing that. You'll be crazy. Yeah, like at the end of the day, like you cannot tolerate that amount of sadness, connection. You do need to take breaks. You need to think about what you want to eat. You need to, to talk to someone about I'm feeling sad. You need to go to your own therapy, right? Like many things like that. So trying to to do 20 clients or uh, less clients per week, it's hard because how, how do you justify that to founders? They, they want outcomes. They want outcomes and they, they pay for deliverables. They don't pay for administrative support or for spa yes. <laughs> or for lunch or for extra hours. So it's like systemic. It's not, it's not easy to find founders that will help to take care of workers in, in that kind of environment. Yeah, I so my whole career has been in nonprofits, uh, in nonprofit sector, and that is one of my biggest complaints about funders, donors, is that they want to fund uh, the outcome, right? But they don't want to fund, they don't want their money to go to anything else that might support that, right? So it's like we will pay for therapist hours to see clients, but we won't pay for lights. We don't want you to pay. We don't want any of our money to go toward heat and light and rent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And to which you go, well, where am I supposed to see my patients then? My clients, right? I need a functional office, but I don't want to, nobody wants to pay for that. And then you are stuck with like, oh, because we have all this money to do the program work, but we don't have enough to run the operations. Yeah. Exactly. That's that's our dilemma right now because it's like we can apply for more grants and we will have more therapies and we can offer more services. But at the same time, who's gonna apply for the grant? Who's gonna write the grant? Who's gonna pay for grants? Where do we find more offices? Like it doesn't make sense to me. Like we need other kind of support to be able to do a more yeah, a, a better quality job, keep the quality of the job. This is that's a very uh broken uh, part of the philanthropic sector is how people who are giving money get to direct money. Um, you know, and they it's like, I don't want to pay for this. Well, but this, we need you to pay for this. Either you support the entire program or you don't support the program. You don't just get to pick and choose. Well, I just heard, I heard from my father-in-law this past weekend that there are organizations who have millions of dollars in earmarked funds, mm -hmm. but they can't tap into them because they're earmarked for something. And like that giver has passed away or their organization has like, def like they've gone out of, you know, they've stopped being an organization or something. And so like, then what do you do? So there's just millions of dollars in funds, but cannot be touched forever. That seems like a, a major flaw in the system. <laughs> Absolutely. I think what you're bringing up, though, really does speak to the challenge of doing any sort of community benefit work, which is that you do rely on support from well-meaning institutions and individuals. The money always comes with strings attached. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it challenging. 
It's a challenge. Yeah, it's a challenge. And and it's it's so hard because you see how big the need is. Like clients come every day. Like we have now in our intake line, there are 20 calls that we haven't been able to reply to. And they might be crisis, but we have no time. Like we have no resources. We and it's, that's anxiety provoking, I think, for most, most of the practitioners. And they have different needs. They need, it's, it's, it's like a client can come with depression, anxiety, haven't been able to sleep, but also it's because she's losing her house. She hasn't, she, she has been trying to connect with some organization to help her get resources for rent, but they don't speak Spanish. So it's like a, a mix of things and they need so much support that is usually not at our first science. It's not that easy. It's not that enough. You do calls, you you think about them at night. Like it's it's like a lot more energy that that a single session, hi and bye and we'll see you next week. You know, for some of these clients, if they're in crisis, an ambulance is out of the question because that's two thousand dollars. So you drive them there, right, to, to the ER or something like that. Yeah, and that's where ethics comes to a dilemma, too, right? Because, like, if you read the code of social work, many things in, in many places will say, don't do this, don't do that. But if we don't do them, it's like they won't access services. They won't. It's, it's impossible. So it's, sometimes we have to, yeah, make case-by-case decisions on how to proceed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You're just right that it's not, you can't just be like, okay, well, fine. See you later. And yeah, you need to go to the hospital. So go. I mean, also there's a bit of like, because things are so connected and so layered, you can't just take anything in isolation. You know, and that's one of the things that we I've been talking, we have a resident therapist who comes on every season and we have been talking to her about, you know, the effect of like, what does it, how does it affect you to be an immigrant? And, and one of the things that she keeps bringing up is that people don't show up because they are like, I have complex trauma from being in a war. That's not what they show up for. They show up because they can't sleep. They show up because they're fighting with their their husband or wife all the time. They show up because they can't focus and they're uh, gonna lose their job or whatever it is, right? And so it's everything's so integrated, and then you put in sort of the structural factors that would create even more stress on people. I just don't even imagine. I don't even know how, like, where you would start with somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's another huge topic to discuss. Like, uh, for example, there are some, I forgot the name, but it's like QHC, like Esperanza or, or, or places that you can receive mental health services, but it's short term, half an hour, high and by, right? They might connect you to other services that are relevant, like doctor's appointment, they are affordable. It's a great resource, but in regards to mental health, uh, I, I have my doubts, right? Because like when you have experiences, experience a lot of trauma, yeah, the person may come because she's not sleeping or because she's having panic attacks or something like that. But when to, to really help that, that person, you have to be trauma informed. You have to understand that the person has experienced a hundred things and they are not going to share with you the conflicts that are causing the anxiety or the, the 
the, the, the symptoms at the moment until the, they don't feel safe with you in a relationship. And that's not going to happen in eight sessions, right? It, that's going to happen in a long-term relationship. And when you have money and you have PPO insurance or something like that, you can do that. You can take a year of therapy or two years of therapy and you can find that you finally told your therapist something or you recognize that you had that issue that you didn't know. But in, for, for immigrant community, that's not a possibility. That, that's, that's eight sessions, three sessions, once a month, things like that for half an hour. So trauma-informed services mean and, and understanding that we need to create safety first. And that's going to take time. And, and, and we need to respect that after the person has experienced so much short-term services, invasive services, and are, are going to recreate trauma or are going to re-traumatize the client. A lot of clients experience so much traumatic experiences with the system. Like when you ask someone for an ID, they get scared. They don't come back. Yeah, there's definitely, or even if it's not an American ID, like anything, they get scared. That's a terrible way to start a conversation. Yeah, if you start typing in the computer, they're afraid of the information going somewhere else that they cannot control, right? So it's step by step that you need to create a really trauma-enforcing space, and that's going to take time and resources. That's you know, there's, there's so much nuance and complexity. I keep saying complexity, but there's so much of that. And there's so many, like you were saying, people experience trauma in the system itself, that it's not, the system is not set up to be gentle with people, unless you're a certain type of person. Someone asked me for an idea. I was like, yeah, sure. Here you go. Someone asked me for an ID. I don't even think about it. And I just found out that uh, my ID is expired. I just found this out. And someone asked me for an ID and I, I was, here you go, you know, didn't even think about it. And he looked at it and he goes, do you have an ID that's not expired? And I was like, oh my God. Like, it was very clear that I had no idea. And it wasn't a problem, right? I was like, oh, I have to get my, ID. I didn't realize it, this and that. And he let it go. Like it was, he accepted it because I had all the information and he let it go. And I was, and I, I take for granted that like, just look into it. It's fine. Or, Oh, I have my passport also, or something. You know, I think the closest we, you and I, Kosha can get is, you know, after September 11th, there was a real ongoing sense of, of, lack of safety in the world being a person that looks vaguely Arabic, right? Anyone Brown, anyone Brown, but you know, sort of, it's like, but if you were like Mexican or from like a Latinx country, that was that, then you have different issues with the United States. Right. But that wondering when someone gets in an elevator with me, are they going to start screaming at me? If I walk into a store, is someone going to give hassle me? That kind of stuff, most of the time people do not think about, you know, then something just like slaps you across the face and you're like, wow, there's so much here. There's so much privilege in just being able to walk around 
and feel like you belong in a place and that you can, whatever it's being asked of you, you can manage it. I, I mean, that's such a, such a great reminder lesson even for most of our listeners, which is, you know, most people don't think about an ID, right? Most people don't think about trying to figure out how to rent an apartment. And instead of having, you know, four people in a two bedroom, you have to have eight people in a two bedroom. And then how do you manage that? Because that's actually against the code and you don't want your landlord to find out and all all this stuff. I mean, it's just so, there's so many, so many layers of people needing to be watching their back about things, not knowing where it's going to come from either. So, and we live in very anti-immigrant times right now, you know, the past, what, six, seven years, the rhetoric, right. And it's top-down rhetoric has been very anti-immigrant. Can you talk about your population a little bit in terms of the, the, what they're going through, what you have to deal with and how you start unpeeling that onion? Yeah, sure. 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 Uh, well, I would say most of my clients come from from areas in like North America, like Mexico, Central America, Latin America too, where they were struggling financially a lot. They don't, they didn't come because they wanted to. They, they, they most of the time they came because they didn't have any other option, right? Like uh, the poverty or the the like the violence to like a lot of Central America, the violence that they were enduring. Um, they needed to uh, a safe place for their kids or for or to be able to send money for their kids or situations like that so a lot of the the population comes with trauma poverty extreme poverty is traumatic experiences of violence are traumatic too so they come with that coming in, to the u.s without a visa is traumatic too right like the 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 trip is very the 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 crossing the border is very difficult the the their women are raped and children they're separated from their parents they they meet each other six months later like you don't know if they if you get caught like you can't be separated from family members for a long period of time in trump time uh, children were taken away from parents, and they and they didn't tell them where the children were. So you you didn't know if you were gonna see your child again. Yeah, so it's super traumatic. I love there are a bunch of movies that you can see and and understand based on real um, life experiences, in which you 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 wanna cry every time you see them because it's excessively traumatic. So they come here with hoping that they will be safe, hoping that they will find, have a better future. And when you get here, it's not that not like that. You end up you end up working on a fabric or or on those jobs that are underpaid. You are mistreated. I have clients that mention not even being able to go to the bathroom on on worship. Like and for example, I have a client that has to have her baby alone because her husband wouldn't be allowed to go with her to the hospital. He could lose his job if he took a day off, right? Uh, because there is not a contract. There is not a benefit. There is not any safety. There is nothing. 
because it's so low the payment, parents have to work two, two shifts and kids are lonely in the streets. So it's a systematic trauma experience from birth to now, yeah? And, and in, in different stages, in different ways. So when we have a client, yeah, they might not be sleeping, but really the issue is a lot of, of trauma. And now the worst thing is it keeps happening. So we really need to fight to engage them with resources, engage them with, with community, with things that may, like, may make them feel empowered or able to have some control over their lives too, as well as to control their nervous system and their, their symptoms and, and being able to relax and breathe and do things that will help them go through day by day. Oof. Sorry. <laughs> like even just, no, no, that's okay. Just thinking about it is, is exhausting. And I was remembering, you know, when you were saying about children being separated from their parents at the border, I was remembering this video I saw. It's heartbreaking of, uh, you know, it's family that had been separated uh, and then they were being reunited and the child was five, six, seven, something like that. And he, he would refuse to acknowledge that the woman was his mother and she was, she was hysterical, such a deeply wounding experience, you know, to force a child to be away from their parents like that. And that's happening on a population level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's happening to thousands upon thousands of people every year. And then the United States deigns to let them stay. We just go, okay, go. And there's no, there's no acknowledgement that you've been harmed in the process of coming to the United States. There's no support. There's just nothing. They're nothing. And they've done a lot. I feel like uh, that's my perspective, but I feel like they do a lot for us, for the country in general, like uh, paying taxes, working extra hours, three shifts. Like it's, it's crazy how much they do here to, to socially grow in many areas. So they deserve help. They, they, we immigrants, we deserve help. We, we deserve services of everyone else. So yeah, it's 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 very sad. And I and I I think even though we fight for change and th this is trauma, non eh, what's their name, treatment or trauma movements and things like that, we are still very new, like very not even eh, having enough space to change this my we need to do more a lot more yeah no that's that's absolutely true I'm trying to think about trying to clear my head now actually because I'm just like, <laughs> I know I know it's a lot of information <laughs> you know you had mentioned how much these these types of immigrants do for the country and again it's that hateful rhetoric that it doesn't acknowledge how much they do. And so it's like, you know, oh, they're coming and taking our jobs. I remember when Shayla, she lived in California, there would be like these day workers who would be in the Home Depot parking lot. People would come pick them up and then they get paid a few dollars an hour to go pick fruit or, you know, pick grapes or whatever it is. And it's like, yeah, they're not taking our quote, our jobs. Yes. Right. 
he's not taking your job. You're not going to do that job. And it's, it's really sad. And then I'm just, you know, I'm trying to process, you know, they're coming from sub living levels, like suboptimal situations, really hoping for a better life and then get here and get continually shit on. Like that's just reoccurring trauma. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's re-experiencing trauma over and over. Now talking about social workers at schools. Yeah. Like here, I, 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 I don't know exactly how many, but I, in Oak Park, there might be like a, a, a social worker per elementary school. It's a hard work, but they are all day long there seeing students and supporting and like in Brighton Park, they have one that covers four or six schools. Yeah. My daughter's school, it's small. Okay. Cause we're in river forest. Uh, I think they're out of 400 kids. There's two social workers in the school. Yeah. So also to, to offer support at that level, there is a lack of support. Then other organizations like us or other nonprofits try to fund, get funding to support with another social workers, but it's, it's not right. It's, not, it's like the structure is not made to protect these kids. So also a lot of communities come with this idea that I, I'm here and I'm going to work after over hours, be isolated from my family, miss my food, miss everything, miss my, don't see my dad for years or my mom for years because I want a better future for my children. But in school, there are a lot of violence. Like it is not safe. Like when you are like a boy and you are alone in the streets going to school, gang members want to in, engage you and, and there is not safety or protection, yeah? Not, not even to support you with those concerns in school. There is not answer to the parents. There is not, yeah, there is not safety. So on many levels, it's like re-traumatizing and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's very, there is not safety for those communities to keep growing and protecting themselves. You know, in light of recent, most recent school shooting, that happened in Texas, you know, there's this call for mental health services, mental health services, right? We need more mental health, which is, that's absolutely true. Nobody's going to deny that, right? But your work is just demonstrating two things. One, the need for mental health services, the desire, like the clamoring even for people to get mental health services is at a level it could just be because of the pandemic. It could just be because people have a time to actually think about what, oh, I actually, I do need to take care of myself. I do want to talk about this with someone, but that it's getting, there's just, there's not even enough providers to serve all the people who need to be served. And then you have to do away with this notion that it's like, like you said, eight sessions and whatever issues that you have will be solved. I, I live a life of significant privilege. I'm safe. I, you know, I live in certain amount of affluence. I have a stable family. Uh, my children are healthy. I speak English. I am a citizen of the United States. I know how to navigate the system. All of these things, highly educated, all of that stuff, right? I still go to therapy. I go to therapy twice a week. I've been going for three years and I'm still like figuring stuff out where I was like, oh, now it's a different 
kind of therapy, right? This is more like self-actualization instead of like dealing with trauma, but stuff still comes up. I barely got to even know my therapist after eight sessions, much less for that person to know me, right? Because part of, part of your work is to be able to guide your client to think, to question, to ask, to talk. They have to trust you, but you have to know the person to know where to, where to push and where to prod and where to let go. You know, you can't just barrel in and be like, all right, now we're going to talk about all the stuff that's bothering you. You don't even know. No. And sending, uh, asking a person to tell me a story, yeah, that they, it, it could be traumatizing. They, there needs to be safety before that. Mm-hmm. They can re-experience all this trauma and I send them home and they will have nightmares and they will have panic attacks and they will have a bunch of experiences that are going to be re-traumatizing. So it's, it, it has to be slow. It has to be careful. It, it has to be because they are ready, not because I, I have a, an agenda, right? Like it is, it has, but that's a privilege, as you say. Like I've been going to therapy too, but my husband has had insurance since he came to the United States. That's a privilege for me too, but, but it's, not, it's not for a lot of people. Even, even if they have insurance, it's, it's not, it doesn't cover mental health or it doesn't cover the kind of mental health that we know they need. Yeah. Or that, or, I mean, even, even if it does, right, it covers only certain providers and those providers have long wait lists, as you were saying, they're not taking clients, uh, they're, on, they're only open on days that you can't do it. I mean, it, this is, the therapy isn't, uh, you know, Walmart, where you just walk in and get what you need and leave. It's a relationship and the match has to be right and it has to work for you as both sides. So it's just so, you know, it's simple and complex in the sense that like, yes, mental health, we, everyone in the United States, mental health is woefully under uh, valued and under uh, supported here. Like there's just not enough of it. Right. But it's not as simple as just being like, well, we'll just provide more services. It doesn't, mm-hmm. No, it's not that right. simple. You can't just open up more lanes mm-hmm. in the in the drive-through. That's not how it works. No, that's not how it works. And an example of that is, I think in 2012, the the city clinics for mental health were closed. Like they from 12, they went to five because they nobody went there. <laughs> nobody went there. Even they they offered mental health services. But if you go there, the person who receives you speaks only English. It's very a, a sterile environment, like very medical environment, right? They probably ask you for an ID. They don't have childcare. They they don't provide explanation of how to get there, right? It's it's like a bunch of things. So you cannot open mental health clinics only to open them. You need really to offer trauma informed <laughs> services and train and train clinicians to be able to do it. And that's also like uh, something that's important in education that you need to train people to do that, to, to be aware of that. Yeah, I that's just the way you said it was so great, which is you can't just open clinics just to open them. It has to actually meet the needs of the people who would use it. Yeah, yeah, but it, it, at the same time, I feel like government and thing is like just, we don't open anymore because there is a lot of stigma. 
And that's like, uh-uh. you have to open them and you have to stack in. <laughs> yeah, you have to do it properly. That also becomes a reason where they're like, well, we're not going to do anymore because when we did open them, they weren't utilized. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Like they're empty. So clearly it's not the mental health resources. Like we have so many and they're not being utilized. Um, I am curious about the stigma though, because in the Indian community, there is a pretty significant stigma in terms of, you know, it, just admitting that you need the mental health help right? That, that someone is suffering from mental illness. And, you know, we've talked about in Indian communities there, you either, you have two options, like hide that person away or send them away. It sounds like the stigma is not as serious in your immigrant Hispanic communities, but, but it's still there. What, what do you deal with when it comes to that? Cause I would have guessed it was stigma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, uh, and, and I will say like, Let's talk about stigma in our countries or of, of origin, right? Like, like I didn't receive services in Colombia when I needed them. My dad didn't either because of stigma, right? So it it was the and and I think my parents did it out of kind of not because it was a bad intention or anything. It 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 was out of love. I think they were afraid of me being classified as a problem person and and then stigmatized or something like that, right? The same for themselves, like uh, we can function, we don't need it. Like you talk to your family about your issues, you don't talk to a stranger or, or things like that. A lot of, but, I, but I think here in the communities I'm working, organizations have been doing a great job. Like there the, is this, uh, like for example, BPNC, there's an organization that has a lot of, in Brighton Park, they have a, it's an example, but there are others, yeah. They they have these community organizers that go to schools, bring workshops, bring everything. So I, I presented in a lot of workshops about depression, anxiety, trauma, and other mental health practitioners go often every every week to talk about that to moms. Maybe it stigma was an issue before, but I now I think people is getting more aware. Thank you to those organizations and to these community organizers that are bringing so much information to schools, churches, and things like that. I will say, though, that engaging men has been a lot harder than moms and women. <laughs> like, that's being harder. Um, and we're still struggling with that. Even though, like, 25% of our web list now is men, which is an improvement. But it, it, it wasn't like that before. So even getting them signed up, but what about when they come actually into your practice, is it more difficult to engage them in the sessions also? I think it's, it's, it's harder to gain their trust. I will say that. Like, I will say, like, because maybe, as I was mentioned, not everyone comes from uh, academic education. That they have different kinds of education in different areas, but maybe not academic, yeah? So what you've been told in many places is you, you have, you are a macho, you have to deal with your feelings this way or that way. That's why aggressivity and drinking are all, are often the coping mechanisms. And men don't talk about feelings. They talk about how much you drunk or how strong, whether it's sports, things like that, but they don't talk about feelings. So I think you have to do a psychoeducation phase, switching about feelings, the importance of feelings there. And if 
they trust you and they find that you are giving them something that they really, that makes sense for them, they will stay. But I, I do think the engagement process is difficult and, it, and, and there are not many spaces for men to go to groups, go to workshops, go to presentations as there are for women in the communities. So that's a challenge too. Yeah. Yeah, men are allowed to be happy or mad. Or mad. <laughs> Like it, it's like yeah. happiness and anger, mm-hmm. even though anger, by the way, is a feeling, but apparently it's allowed, but like every, all the other nuances, like just you cut it out. Yeah. They, they will love feelings is limited. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, yes, exactly. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that is that, you know, phenomenon that men are generally not as boys not taught to be in touch with their feelings to you know to squelch everything down um to be tough all of those things that's it feels almost like a universal i don't know if it's a complete universal but i don't know many i cannot think of a culture off the top of my head where uh men are as equally engaged with their emotional life as women Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and I think we talk a lot to, to other women I feel like that and we talk about things that matter like we talk about anxiety being afraid and so it's easier to communicate and to to create community and gain resources like oh you know I went to this workshop or, or I hear this podcast or something like that so it's spread the word is spread so also the, the stigma can be lower, but yeah, with men it's harder because not it's not a common theme of conversation. Like, how are you feeling today? Uh, did you have a high and low this week? Like, it's 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 different. Yeah, even something you know small, relatively small, is like, oh, I talk about it with my my sister, and I talk about it with my best friend, and I, I talk about my feelings with my husband, but then it's like. I don't know that his, his, he will talk to me about some things. I don't know that he talks to anyone else about those things. And it's, and there's a lot of, I think, uh, emotional vagueness that happens with men, right? So rather than saying, I'm sad, I'm hurt, I'm disappointed, you know, I'm lonely. It's like, I'm upset. It's just sort of this like general, like I'm angry, I'm upset. I'm in a good mood, right? Instead of like being like precise and understanding there is a difference between being upset because you're lonely and upset because you're hurt. But you, if you just lump it in as upset, <laughs> then the solution to those things are going to be very different. The conversation around those things are going to be very different. You should not name your feelings the same way you would name your stomach. (laughs) That's a good way to think about it. (laughs) And I mean, you could talk about that wheel of feelings. I'm sure it's like, okay, so you're either happy or you're not. And now we have to go into the not. What is that about? Okay, I'm upset. Okay, what is that about? And so that just takes, that's like 15 sessions right there just to give them the vocabulary. Just to name the names, use the words like I would with Anushka. 
Yeah, and, and like when when you are overwhelmed with feelings, you just feel numb, like nothing, numb. It's too much, it's numb. So going through that, allowing yourself to be once again with your body and really feel something. <laughs> it takes time, it takes a long time. So yeah, it's hard. And and actually that's a huge thing because after let's say the 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 men come to therapy and they find themselves comfortable talking about their feelings, having like more deep conversations with the therapist. Yeah. They want to be in therapy forever, but we cannot offer that either. There is not money for that. So we, we want to send them to a support group. Like with women, there are support groups. There are like a, a self-esteem groups, different things. And in the community, in the Latino community, there are a few. Not a lot, but there are a few. But with men, there is not a single support group that is not domestic violence abusers. <laughs> yeah, they, they or alcoholics. Or Alcoholics like, Anonymous. They, yeah, there is nothing that is like, yeah, come here and talk. Yeah, like there is uh, nothing. Yeah, that makes it hard. Yeah, makes it hard, makes it hard. So yeah, we need a lot of resources and a lot of change. I, and I, and I, and I, I, I hope like that's something that I wish students will will get from that at school i didn't get it at school i i learned from it working in the community but i hope that's something that is more integrated into academia so yeah students come aware of these kind of situations and ready to advocate and join collaboratives and join other or other aspects of mental health that is not only therapy how do you keep hope when you're going against these systemic structural problems, right? You were not trained to take on the structure, but I hear a lot of passion and a lot of joy in what you do. How do you maintain hope and not just go, you know, oh, the, full, the whole system's fucked. I'm just going to go sleep. Like <laughs> that's how I feel right now. Like I need a nap. Like how do you maintain that? Yeah. Well, I see very small change, but there are changes. And there, there is people uh, working on that. Like this collaborative um, that for community wellness that I was mentioned, they, they fought very hard about this treatment of trauma. They didn't get there to defund a little bit of the police money to, offer, to, to create some mental health resources for the communities, right? They didn't get what they wanted, but they, get a, they got a little bit. Yeah, so it's it like, it's not happening tomorrow yeah and but 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 i think little things happen yeah and i keep hope also with my clients like they they get results in their life they they life changes for them uh, clients that weren't able to 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 leave their house they they didn't trust anyone they start making friends and they start being advocate or one of these um organizers at school like different roles and then start participating then in in in, in activities and larger activities to advocate for the community needs so you you start seeing that the, the community is getting readier and more prepared and there is more awareness so it's not like it's not huge i wanted it to be more larger like more supported but i keep hope because i see things a little bit no change and now like working with we work in, in the nonprofit. we're starting to to find founders that are ready to listen to us about our real needs 
is not happy yet, but they are ready to understand that it doesn't work the way they were trying to conduct. So I, I, I think little by little we're reaching some a, a better place, but it's, it's not, yeah, but it's not always easy with the policy, governments and things like that. So yeah, some days I keep hope, some days I'm very disappointed, <laughs> I, I was, <laughs> to be honest. Sometimes you have hope and sometimes we drink wine. Yeah, sometimes we drink wine. And, so, <laughs> and I do go to therapy and I vent and I cry sometimes about the frustration of not being able to 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 do more or to offer more safety to, to our clients and our communities. Yeah. yeah, I was going to ask you if you experience compassion fatigue uh, as well, that sometimes you just, you know, whatever clients you have seen that day, you come home and you're just like, I'm done. Nobody can talk to me. Nobody can ask me for anything. I don't care. I left all my caring at work. Yeah, I have experienced compassion fatigue. And, and also uh, I have experienced secondary trauma from stories, both. Like start dreaming about a client situation and start thinking, over, thinking about it for a long time. Yeah, I think... I do experience it at some points, like uh, when when I notice that I'm not so emotional about a story or I'm not so sensitive about it or like I'm not get, taking good care of myself or things like that. I uh, But the good thing is like I work with a group of people that we know each other and supervision for us is a, like a priority. So we offer like an hour and a half of supervision to each one. Into, to after uh, a week and plus administrative supervision, a lot of supervision to be able to to process what's going on with you, and we require everyone to go to therapy also. So I think we try, we try to do our best to to keep ourselves healthy. I've been going to ther- to therapy every other week for my, my whole life <laughs> as a therapist. Like I, I need it, I need it. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, it's, it's unavoidable. Like sometimes I, if someone is telling me a sad story, I'm like, I cannot take it. Like I cannot take it, not today. Let me talk about this tomorrow or something else. Like I, I sometimes I'm not present for friends that need me because it's like, I, I need to watch, a, I don't know, Disney movie that everything is gonna be happy at the end. I don't, yeah. I don't know, something like that. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And that, you know, I have anxiety. So I totally understand that where I'm just like, I want to watch a Pixar movie or I want to watch something I've already watched before that I know how it ends, you know, something happy. Uh, You know, it's funny. You just mentioned a Disney movie. You are the third Colombian we have had on this show. Um, So our, our therapist that we have every season, she also is from Colombia. So um, she's coming and then Javier was on, Dr. Dr. Gomez was on. And now I feel like we're like specializing in Colombian people, but <laughs> we mentioned, we've mentioned generational trauma a lot and we've mentioned Disney movies and you're Colombian. So I feel like we have to ask you about the movie Encanto. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's a good point. We have to. Yeah. Can you talk about that movie? What it meant for you? I think that movie needs to be like shown in like psychology and therapy classrooms mm-hmm. because of how beautifully it shows generational trauma. And Sheila, she has mentioned like, there's no bad guy. There's no quote villain. The like the grandma, the, the abuela is not 
a horrible person. She's trying to protect her family. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what that movie like meant to you and then what your thoughts are on it? Well, yeah, when you mentioned Encanto, I remember that I went to Butchilmo, I don't know, because it was the only one in Spanish. And I cried. I cried all the time. I was so emotional with that movie. Like, I, I, I actually felt very well represented as a Colombian. Like, I, I, I feel like, usually when I see Colombian movies that are about narcos and things like that, even though I recognize that that's <laughs> happening in Colombia, it's not the whole picture, it's not our whole culture, it's, it's not like a full Colombia, right? But in Canto, I felt like they, they got it. They got it better. It's not only like the, the familism, the how we protect our family, how we care, but sometimes we do it wrong because of intergenerational trauma. Like Abuela, she was trying to protect her family and protect after the traumatic loss she experienced. But, but, but at the same time, that is wrong, but the purpose is to keep her family together, right? Mm. And also the movie shows how much we enjoy being together, like how we enjoy being in community. I usually that's a super, like I miss that. I miss that a lot because I, I remember even though I had anxiety in Colombia, like my group of friends helped a lot. They, I was always thinking as a community group, not as isolated with my mind all the time. Like we spent a lot of time together. We share meals, we enjoy a lot of parties. No? So all the town is involved in the person's life, which can be annoying sometimes, but it's also like, <laughs> it's, it's also like you, you don't feel lonely. You don't do things isolated, in isolation. You do things like together, you, you, you grow together and things like that. So I, I also think that was a beautiful demonstration of Colombia. I, I, I saw it in Spanish the first time and I loved it. Then I saw it in English and I also like it a lot. So both both were a good representation of Colombia, I think. That's that's really that's great. I wonder how different the movie would have turned out if Abuela had gotten therapy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I saw something that was like uh Abuela kind of got away with something that like she never she barely had to recognize that she did something wrong. But I was like, no, she apologized at the end. And for immigrant immigrant grandmother, matriarch to yes, to say like, oh, I'm I'm sorry, I might have done it wrong. And this is the reason I did it. I was like, that's that's a breakthrough for Abuela's Namina's like world round grandmas, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That not that doesn't happen that often. So it was a beautiful <laughs> message. <laughs> I I don't even know if you know white mis- midwestern grandmothers would do that, but it it really does represent a particular cultural viewpoint that oh she should just apologize. Well, okay, yes, but in many cultures, if someone's older than you, they're right. End of story. You know, and it's actually very disrespectful to point out that somebody might be wrong. So, so that the idea that, you know, in some ways it's almost revolutionary that Mirabelle would say, you're the one that's doing this. And that, you know, Abuela would actually recognize, oh, I did do this and I am sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Completely true. Also for us Colombians, that, that's a, a, a new experience. 
And the other thing that I loved also that they show is because maybe here, some of us are very nuclear, right? And, and, but I grew up with my grandma, one at home and the other one a few blocks away, right? So it's not only what your parents thought about you, it's about your grandparents, what they thought about you. So if you got a new friend, a new boyfriend, you had to get the approval <laughs> of the whole system, yeah, the whole big family. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that that was very well portrayed there. Like, it's, 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 you have the support, you get raised by different generations. So it's not only a dad or a mom, but it's grandparents, aunts, and others that are related in you growing up. And that's an experience that many of us immigrants are not able to provide to our children, but that's how we grow. Like that's our story. Yeah, both of our parents grew up like that, um, in a in a you know multiple generation household, being raised by aunts, you know uncles, kind of grandparents, older cousins, things like that. It became much more of a. It was a, a you know a small community unto itself in a way, and then that was a part of a larger community, um, and that you know like you said. Uh, being having being part of a community like that has its upside for sure and then sometimes you're like you know can I just do this can I just have some privacy right (laughs) but everyone is always knowing what you're doing Uh yeah one of the things that kind of blew my mind because we are children of immigrants right we're not the immigrants who had that experience but when I was watching Encanto and when I was watching Coco, okay, so really, really similar in terms of that abuela structure, like the grandmother structure, was in both instances, the parents of the kid, they they wanted to do something different for the child than the grandmother, but the grandmother won. And so it's like, why are, like the parents aren't standing up for their kids, you know, but in those structures they can't like in in Encanto the mom is scared that the child is going to be cast out like Bruno I'm like but don't you have control over that and she doesn't actually it doesn't yeah yeah it has good things and bad things like maybe and I like I missed that a lot when I had my son here and I was very alone <laughs> because I wanted a lot of hands to help and that's that like a plus like having eyes for your kid and a lot of support right like my mom was helped by a lot of women within um, to to raise us and everything but yeah the judgment the stereotypes the like prejudices within the family are also a hard thing to deal with absolutely right everything is complex right that's the word of it's the word of the hour mm-hmm. <laughs> as people listen to this you know podcast and they might be motivated to do something, donate, volunteer. What resources can we share with them so that they would, you know, if they're feeling motivated and like, I want to give money or I want to volunteer or I want to write a letter or how, where can we direct them? Yeah. Well, our nonprofit website, we are super happy to receive donations if someone wants or volunteering because as I mentioned, we, we have we can pay some of the practitioners, but we cannot offer 
administrative support or rent or like a coffee machine or things like that, right? So so those kind of things will be great. The, the thing is we didn't have money for marketing until now. Like we got a grant for marketing. So the website is going to be ready at the end of July. And it's centrosanar.org. So centrosanar.org. In English, the meaning of centrosanar yeah, a center for healing. That that will be the translation. So that's a way that you can finance, or you can they can whoever wants to can email me directly. My email is Tatiana at centrosanar.org. So, yeah, but also there are many ways. There are great organizations to 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 get involved with, like bpnc bpnc byron park neighborhood council they do a lot for the community in many many areas also they help uh, community members find jobs uh, with the resume school like facing this um, yeah they do a lot so that's a great organization to fund uh, let me think and also joining the collaborative of mental health uh, like the one that i mentioned the collaborative for community wellness that's org it, they they meet every friday and they, there are a lot of things that come out from that like there are um, committees that work on different aspects like writing letters uh, building a plan things like that so it someone is interested in getting engaged with more advocacy work and, and subjects that matter in this situation, that, that will be a great, a great collaborative to join. Yeah. Great. Wonderful. So then the second to last question we always ask is what advice do you have for somebody who is, if they were thinking about becoming a, a community social worker focused on mental health or if they are working with people who have mental health issues or they're an immigrant or a child of an immigrant or they're dealing with structural issues. Like I'm just going to say what advice you have on any of these things, because there's so many different bits and pieces of advice that I think our listeners would really appreciate. But that's, so I'm just going to leave that up to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a question that I've been thinking for a while because I, I, once a year I teach at Loyola, I advise my students, first, don't be afraid of request what you need. Like many times when we work on community mental health, we, as you mentioned before, it's like we should be uh, able to do everything because we are here for passion. So, so we don't have the right to ask for a decent salary or for, to ask for a therapy session or more supervision or more time with your supervisor. So my recommendation is be aware of what you need and don't be afraid to, to, to ask for that. Like think you, you deserve that you're doing a very hard job. Yeah, we. I remember me as a young practice. As, as soon as I started practicing back in 2014, I was very afraid of asking for to for things for me. Like I, I don't feel comfortable driving there so late. Ask for someone to go with you. Like be 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 advocate for yourself. You are part of this the the need. Yeah, and you need to be well to be able to support your clients. You you don't. We don't need you to fall into the the same sadness and, and despair, right? We need to, for you to, we are the tool working with clients. So we need to take a lot of care of ourselves and our, our, ourselves as a tool 
of healing, of supporting, of creating a safe space. That will be my recommendation for, for new practitioners. Mm. And the other recommendation is don't forget that the work is not, not only in session. We need to see a bigger perspective. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to do much. Like We need to also work outside the session and join, support other communities, collaboratives that are working toward making a change. And also for people who's looking for services and that are experiencing symptoms as I did like when I came here, strong anxiety is, is, is not that you are not alone. Like you think many times when you have intrusive thoughts, you're thinking that you're losing your mind. Like you, what's happening? I'm not gonna be able to move forward in life if I cannot even leave my house or I cannot even speak to a person that I don't know. There are very different levels of anxiety, but there's treatment and there are ways to, to overcome those kind of things. You just need to find help and support. So, so I, I think that's important to know that mental health is as diabetes, flu, things like that. That happens to us once in our life or more, we have crises, we have moments, we have, or we've been enduring trauma and we need support, but there is treatable. And if with the right support, you can get over or get functional or learn a lot and, and learn a lot about your strengths and your capacity to overcome those kind of situations. Thank you. Um, so our last question is about, it's the term familact. I sent you the information I know. And uh, when Javier was on, he, when Dr. Gomez was on, he, he said um, in Colombia, the U.S. Navy, U.S. Navy, Shailushi spit, like she almost, I almost like, spit yes. out her drink because she was so <laughs> shy. I did not expect that at all. <laughs> Yeah, that's going to be a hard one to match because that's really <laughs> it's really good and people don't think of it. But uh, yeah, what are some examples, uh, one or two examples from your own life? And it could it doesn't have to be all of clump. You don't have to represent your whole identity, but like uh, just in your house, are there things or translations or are there things that Mateo says, you know, mm -hmm. that are just funny? That's funny. Yeah, well, I can think about two. Let me try to, to bring them up. Like one is like in Colombia, there are not a lot of blonde people. There's few, but not a lot. And my brother and I were very blonde in, in comparison to, 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 to our school mates and things like that. I, nobody knew that I, my name was Tatiana. They call me Mona. Mona is, is blonde in 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 colombia and not mona but la mona so the blonde the blonde <laughs> yeah the, the blonde so when they called to my house they never asked hi can i you know when we yeah. didn't have so and hi can i speak with the blonde like the la mona and and my mom is blonde and my aunt is blonde so which one <laughs> <laughs> My, when my my husband met me, they met me like La Mona, Mona, yeah, like that. So sometimes he called me Tatiana here in United States, but when we were there, he was La Mona, La Mona, La Mona. When he started working here, like co-workers will say, let's go and have dinner. And he will say like, let me ask La Mona, La Mona, let me ask La Mona. But in other Latin American countries, La Mona is not blonde. It's, La Mona means monkey and so oh. he was like let me ask the monkey 
The kids, we call it chinito, chinita, chino, china. It's, it's like a very common way to call young kids in, in Bogota, not in Colombia, but in Bogota, in my city. But chino means also from China, right? From China. I was new to community work. I was in, 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 in the office and a, a very young lady came and she was, I think she had schizophrenia or something like that. And she started screaming and thing. And I was in the front door and I tried to help, but she escaped. Yeah. So I was super, super anxious about it and went to my supervisor and they were in a meeting and I said, it, it, they speak Spanish. So I was talking in Spanish and say, la chinita vino y se fue. O sea, like she came and the chinita came and she left and she's running. We should go and find her or something. What do we do? And they were like, it, it was little village. And they were like, so and a China a girl from China came here <laughs> and was looking for services here. And I like, know, the younger, the younger <laughs> You speak Spanish. I'm supposed to be. This is supposed to be easier. Yeah, you you're supposed to, to to understand me. But one was from Chile and the other one was from Mexico, so they had oh, no idea what I was. No idea. Yeah. See, and I think that's really good because people think like, oh, because you were saying like your son had a a, a Mexican nanny, <laughs> and so he, she he had a Mexican accent, and it's like stuff that we don't think about. Kosh is right. I think these stories showed that like language culture is not unilateral it's not uniform the same word it just translates into something totally different um and just how amusing that can be in, in safe situations mm -hmm. yeah, yeah yeah there's a, what's the word in colombia what's the word for like armpit smell uh chucha chucha in every other country it means vagina um, in, 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 in a lot of countries, my means vagina. Yeah, no, because yeah, my mom, that was, we were with Argentinians friends and, and they, they had like, the, I forgot, the baseball hat is, is like called in Colombia, cachucha. Cachucha. And this is cachucha, but this is cachucha. And my mom was telling my, 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 my brother, get, put the cachucha on, put the cachucha on, <laughs> and everything like that. And the Argentinians were like, what are you talking about what like, matter with these people <laughs> yeah. but what's so i would never have you know in the million years i would have ne never guessed that there's a word in gujarati called chucho or chucha right which means like fuzz string or a fuzz or a lint or something like that something wow like for away <laughs> yeah so Indian people and Argentinian people and Colombian people need to just speak English to each other. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, you're yeah. right. We just learn, need to learn to speak better. So well, just to communicate and laugh about yeah. these things because it is hilarious. So Tatiana, you've been so amazing. I love your passion. I think this stuff is, is vital for us to move forward as a community. And I, I really appreciate you coming on and talking to us yeah. about this. It was Thank so you. wonderful.
I cannot. It's two p.m. I, I, I right. That's amazing. I, I talked for a long time, but it was amazing. Thank you very much. It was. I had a lot of fun. I'm glad. Yeah. Thank you again. Bye bye. Bye.